Welcome to episode 10 of Cabin 11, where there is always an extra bunk bed. I'm Celeste. And I'm Minnie. And this is Cabin 11, a Percy Jackson podcast. Welcome to the first episode of our fall session. Make sure to check in with Chiron and the Cleaning Harpy so they know that you're here. If you don't, you run your own risk of being eaten by accident. You were warned. You were warned. You were warned. Normally, right here, we would do our character creature spotlight. We're not going to do that this time. We're going to kind of weave it in into the chapter analysis. So see if you can figure out who we're going to be talking about. (laughs) As you will learn, if you don't already know, Greek mythology is super intertwined with many different versions of each story. We are not experts or qualified, just here to have a good time and tell you about a story that we love. Absolutely. Uh, You can find Cabin 11 on Instagram at Cabin11podcast and on Twitter at Cabin Percy. Follow those accounts just to receive the most up-to-date information about your favorite Percy Jackson podcast. As usual, before we uh, dive in, This is the moment where we say there will be major spoilers ahead, so please proceed with caution if you're a first-time reader and haven't read the whole series. You have some colossal spoilers coming. Don't Mm -hmm. say we didn't warn you. On our last episode, we discussed how Capture the Flag happens at Camp Half-Blood, and at the end of it, Percy Jackson was finally claimed, and we know who his father is, and he is a child of the big three, Poseidon. This chapter touches on the aftermath of what happens. This chapter starts with the most exciting, but in my personal opinion, saddest sentences. And it is, the next morning, Chiron moved me to cabin three. So Percy's alone again. He's his own counselor now and can select his schedule. He no longer has to sit at the overflowing Hermes cabin table and be up as late as he wants. And he is absolutely miserable. Oh my gosh, I know. He lists off all of these different things that typically at that age, I know at that age for me, being not an only child, I wanted all of those things. I wanted to be in charge of my own bedtime. I wanted to have my own room, my own space. Percy's here and he just found his home and his like new family, I guess. And now he's absolutely miserable and all alone again. Yeah, Percy wants the kind of freedom... That he can be around people, whereas I feel like most people would want the opportunities Percy's getting. But he wants to fit in. He wants to belong. He wants to have his niche group that feels like home. Mm -hmm. And he finally felt like he had that. And it was ripped out from underneath him all because his father is Poseidon. And when he walks around, he feels like that he has a target right in the middle of his forehead. And it doesn't matter if it's by the campers. And eventually he's going to feel like that because of his monsters, too. So it gets to the point where campers are even hesitant to be around him. And his sword lessons ended up being one-on-one with Luke. And Luke did not hold back. He would push him and push him and push him. And it just makes me so sad because I feel like we're just right back to that first chapter of Percy being alone. The only person he has is Grover. But now it's like it's Percy and Luke. Yes, Grover's around. He's still doing his lessons with Annabeth. But she's like frustrated and constantly talking about a prophecy and like this doesn't make sense. So it doesn't feel the same to him anymore. And that's just heartbreaking. Yeah, because it's like right at that key moment when he was finally feeling accepted that one captured the flag and he helped. And he's found a home and now he's isolated all over again. Yeah. And so he's like had that taste of what it feels like to belong. And so now that he's like an outcast again, it's that much more like devastating. It 
almost I feel would have been easier if he didn't know different yeah but because he does now it's like I guess it's like a key highlight of that yeah the isolation that he's feeling at least he has sword practice with Luke but oh my goodness (laughs) but like even Luke isn't the same as he was before Luke Hmm. just pushes him and pushes him and pushes him and it makes me wonder like does he actually want Percy to get better or is he trying to push his limits and see where his breaking point is? I feel like it's probably, I, okay, it could be either, but I like to think of it as Luke is almost giving Percy an avenue to channel his frustration, like into his training and like all of his emotions. Yeah. Luke has his own struggles too. So that would make sense. Mm. That would make a lot of sense because they could both utilize that time as being able to get their emotions out. And Percy even says that, like, when he leaves, like, he's always tired, constantly covered in bruises. It's good. He's building strength and character. It is. <laughs> it is really good, especially considering, as we will find later in this chapter, how limited his training time is. I kind of already touched on Annabeth and her reaction to it, but she's really stressed because she's been made aware by Chiron that she fits into this specific prophecy. And if Percy is this child that is part of this prophecy, she's really confused to how she fits in. And she's really yeah. struggling with that. And I truly think that she always was hanging on to the hope that it would be a child of Zeus in hopes of getting a piece of her best friend back. Yeah. Yeah. I um I hadn't I hadn't considered that before you wrote it in the notes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Cuz my thinking was that she was distracted because of the rivalry between Athena and Poseidon and she wants to be prepared but doesn't know what to be prepared for and doesn't know how she doesn't like being not being five steps ahead of everyone. But the fact that yeah, I hadn't thought about that fact that she might be like hoping that her friend would come back somehow, you know? Yeah, even in just um, a way of another child of Zeus. Because yeah. as like we learn in later series, and I will just give a spoiler warning because I'm talking about second series, Jason has a lot of very similar characteristics to Talia. Um, I wonder why. And it just... <laughs> Sorry. No, you're good. Ugh. It's almost as if Jason had been a part of this prophecy that maybe things would have been different and maybe Annabeth could have had that relationship that she'd wanted. So we're back to Percy being isolated and because of this distance that everyone's giving Percy, he's started intentionally picking fights with Clarice just so that he doesn't feel like invisible and ignored. It it just so clearly reminded me of how like growing up in school, there'd always be that one kid in class who's like drawing attention to themselves or picking fights just so that they got some human interaction I'd never really thought about it from their perspective before because it was always just they were being kind of a nuisance and I was trying to learn yeah but the fact that we see here Percy's like just isolated and craving any kind of human interaction whether it's negative or positive he's just he's lonely he's lonely yeah and And I mean in the first yeah and like in these first few chapters like Grover still treats him relatively normal but we don't really hear about their interaction within this first week after it happens I would assume that Grover's still around but Grover also has his responsibilities around camp so it's not like he can be with Percy 24 7 to defend him support him whatever he needs it's just unfortunately not something that Grover can do yeah not like back when they were at school together 
Yeah, because Percy was, in a sense, able to monopolize that time with him, and he can't do that anymore because Dionysus has his roles for him. So there's one day where Percy specifically feels like a target, and it's because that Percy gets back to his cabin, and there's an article from the New York Times, and it's about how Percy and Sally are missing, and Gabe is outright blaming Percy. So now this 12-year-old kid has three targets on him, monsters, campers, and mortals, because he really needs that. And it just... I never understood Gabe or the reasoning of why he treated Percy so, other than the fact that he's just a jerk. But Right? Like, how is this 12-year-old kid responsible for a car accident, for a start? Um, Because Gabe doesn't want to be Thinking through a mortal lens, you know? (laughs) Like... Uh, thinking through a mortal lens the entire world is after Percy yeah and it's horrible poor thing so after Percy's read that article he like falls asleep and has a dream we've previously established um, in one of our like earliest episodes I think it might have even been the first ones first one how um, important the dream sequences are and to like be paying really close attention. So this is like another kind of, there's a lot to pay attention to in this one. Some mm-hmm. of it's obvious, some of it's less so. Percy is running along a beach in a storm and there's a city behind him which is only specified as not New York and there were palm trees and low hills. And two men are on the beach fighting just ahead of Percy. And he describes them as looking like TV wrestlers with big muscles and white beards and flowing Greek tunics. And I never really watched wrestling growing up, so I didn't really have a good visual for this at all. That's okay, me I was either. just like, okay, cool, two old men in togas fighting on the beach. Yeah. <laughs> but the Greek tunics are trimmed. One is in blue and the other is in green. Now, I looked into, like, as the dream sequence itself is described, we can piece together who it belongs to. But I was looking at to at, into the colors a little bit. Um, and the blues and purples are typically associated with Zeus being the god of the sky and king of the gods because they're kind of like the royal colors. Like blue and purple dyes and coloring in general in history were really hard to come by. They were really expensive to get. Um, uh-huh. And then the green, uh, the green blues, they're associated with uh, Poseidon, like the ocean. And just, I mean, in general, nature. (laughs) Percy's watching the fight and knows that he has to stop it. But he doesn't, like, know why. He doesn't understand why. The harder he ran, the more the wind held him back. So I looked into dream theory a little bit. Didn't go down too big of a rabbit hole because I know it's so, like, subjective. Yeah, Yeah, you can get into so much. And wind and storms can mean, like, change and upheaval, which I thought was pretty fitting, um, given everything in Percy's life has been literally uprooted. Especially Um, within the past, like, even leading up to this, so much has changed. Oh, yeah, so much has changed. His whole meaning of reality has changed. Yeah. Um, But, yeah. Because this is the way that gods communicate with their children or demigods in general, there's going to be a lot of symbolism, but also there are some more direct things. So while Percy is struggling towards the two figures, Zeus and Poseidon, he can hear the blue-robed one yelling, give it back. So this is where we make the connection in the book that this is Zeus, because Zeus has had something stolen from him. And then the green-robed one 
This is just further cementing the color association. He's yelling it to the to the green robed one. I picture toddlers every single time I get to that part. Like, get it back! Like kids in the sandbox. Yes! Fighting over a toy. Yes! That's exactly what I picture. They're children. Toddlers. That's hilarious. Yeah, no, I completely understand that. (laughs) Because I picture the same. But yeah, after witnessing this particular exchange, we hear... A deep and evil voice is how it's described um, from the earth telling him to come down little hero and then the earth splits open right to the core and Percy begins to fall. So earlier in one of the dreams we couldn't decide if it was Hades or Kronos speaking to Percy. Mm -hmm. Here it is very obviously Kronos, and we can kind of interpret how much danger Percy is in because of this. Kronos himself is weaseling his way into Percy's dreams while everyone has been sheltering him from the truth so far. Kronos is the one who's actually giving him knowledge as well. So it's like, while he recognizes that it's a deep and evil voice, like it's Kronos is getting his grip in his mind kind of a thing, cause, and he's also the one giving him answers, which is also dangerous everyone's been sheltering sheltering him and i feel like that was potentially in an attempt to gain favor because he began to provide answers that others have been avoiding telling percy and um we know that Cronus preys on demigods weaknesses and pain and the bitterness that they harbor towards the gods so if percy's holding any resentment for being kept in the dark like this is gonna feed into that Oh, yeah, and we can tell it's Kronos because not, not not just, like, the evil part, but also it opening right to the core of the Earth because in this universe, anyway, that's where Tartarus is. That's yeah. not the underworld. That's Tartarus, which is where Kronos is supposed to be trapped. Um, I'd just like to say that in Minnie's notes, right after it says where we've been sheltering Percy from the truth so far, they have lightning bolt who? And that... <laughs> It makes me laugh so (laughs) much. I was so sad. I was like reading along while you were talking. I was like, she not going to say it. I know. I'm sorry. I just, I felt like my brain got a little scattered and I'm not wearing my glasses. (laughs) That's okay. Have you drank your water so far this morning? No. (gasps) I mean, we're not going to do that today. I've had coffee. That counts, right? For now. After this dream, Percy wakes to the sound of thunder in the distance, which is very ominous. Um, hello, mm. Zeus. <laughs> and Hi, then, buddy. How's it going? <laughs> hey, a pal, you want to come in? Um, <laughs> what, if, what if gods were like vampires and you had to give them permission to permission. come in? <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Okay, I'm so sorry. So the knocking at the door, and it's Grover. Um, and as far as I can recall, this is the first time we see Grover since Percy's been claimed. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of like this warming, like every single time I read this, it's like, oh, Grover, he, we're familiar with him. <sighs> and Grover's saying that Mr. D is wanting to speak with Percy. And this makes Percy all sorts of nervous. And he feels like a walking criminal. Oh, yeah. And his little quip about, like, later in the conversation about it being a crime for him to exist, it really isn't far off the mark. Like, he plays it off like it's a joke, but it comes across to me in, like, one of those, like, super deep insecurities that you try to make light of to just ease the burden of it. But instead of everyone reassuring him, Mr. D pretty much confirms how it's, like, 
dangerous for everyone that Percy exists, not just for Percy, that Percy exists. Like, look how upset Zeus is now that Percy's been claimed. The other campers who are influenced by their parents are also already staring clear, and the god of time himself has already weaseled his way into Percy's mind, and just, he... I. The thing that gets me about this chapter is it's signaling to the reader Percy is in so much danger, mm-hmm. and he has no idea. He doesn't, mm. and honestly, let him live in his ignorant bliss for the time being. Just for another minute, please. Oh. Okay, I'm going to rabbit trail really quick. It makes me so sad that Percy never gets to be a true child. That's it. That's the tweet. Mm, yep. yep. Yeah. So, as they're crossing the field to head up to the great house, a huge storm is brewing in the distance, and everyone on the ground seems uneasy by it. And to me, that this says, this isn't normal. This is a red flag. Ding, 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 ding. This is different. What's going on? Mm, yeah, because we find out shortly, like, after um, speaking with, is it Chiron, I think, that... It's really important that they're being woken up to a storm because it does not rain at camp unless they allow it because of the protections on the camp. Um, And so if it's raining in camp and storming in camp and they haven't let it, it's because the gods are angry. (laughs) So it would, they, the way they say it, like the clouds would usually go around the valley, but instead it seals them in like a coffin which is you know ominous much Um, seriously especially after the dream he had yeah so as mr d so as just read your next line i'm already laughing about it too it's okay greets percy he makes a comment about his dad and he calls him old barnacle beard and that is just so aggressively funny like how do you even come (laughs) up with that like like okay but then there's a thing of like okay we backtrack and what happened in the infinite time before percy that caused him to get this nickname because i guarantee you knowing dionysus (laughs) this nickname has a reason oh yeah (laughs) so what happened what what infection did Poseidon get to cause him to have a barnacle beard <laughs> or like did he sleep for a century and wake up with a barnacle beard like yeah seriously but yeah the conversation with Mr. D basically not instilling any hope in Percy whatsoever none none in the slightest and then Mr. D says something about how he's going to uh affect like, how this conversation is going to go. And he goes, well, I hope spontaneous combustion isn't a thing. And Chiron has to gently remind Dionysus that uh, st- spontaneous combustion is a type of harm. Um, so we can't use that one. That's that's off the table. Yeah, because he's, like, forbidden from harming the campers. So. <laughs> Which is so funny that he's just like, hey, bud, just a little reminder. Spontaneous combustion with these mortals... No can do. Yeah, and like along in that same conversation, he's like listing off things. So he's like the spontaneous combustion. And then he also mentions turning him into a dolphin and sending him back to his dad. But then he's like, "Hmm, that might be preferable to the other option being offered. Like, (laughs) you might prefer being turned into a dolphin and being cast into the ocean. It might have helped him. Honestly, probably. Might have helped him. So. Wouldn't have helped get the lightning bolt back, though. No, this is true. 
So what is this other option, you may ask? Percy is offered a quest. Let's backtrack. Within the two weeks that he has been at camp, he has been aggressively bullied, finally felt at home, was claimed as a child of the big three, knows that he shouldn't be alive, yikes, and has now been offered a quest, something that most campers only can dream of. And the truth comes out. Zeus's lightning bolt is missing, and the gods think that Percy and Poseidon stole it. So now, add the gods to that target list. I wasn't kidding when I said the whole world, the whole universe, is really out to get Percy. The whole world, godly and mortal. Mm. I really like the way that um, it comes out and they finally, like, spill the beans because it's, like, the way that the scene is set up is Kyron and Grover seem like neither one of them wants to say what's going on. They're, like, really reluctant to get into the details. So Percy just jumps in and saves them the trouble by telling them about the dreams he's been having and he's been able to piece together that something has gone missing at about Christmas time and it's making Zeus angry and Kyron confirms that it was the it was the master bolt and it's been stolen not missing percy then oh, yeah, responds and zeus thinks percy did it you know yes like. zeus thinks percy did it and at this point percy says well zeus is crazy and grover goes eh, percy we don't use the c word to describe the lord of the skies there's more thundering that's going on around him. Mm-hmm. <laughs> percy's really out here trying to fend everybody He's calling on mascots calling him crazy <laughs> Percy, please get it together before you are lightning striked. Please. Oh, gosh, I know. And then, um, of course, now that Percy knows what's missing, Chiron starts going into a little bit more detail about, like, what would happen and how if it's not returned, there'll be a full-on war between the gods and it would make the Trojan War look like a water balloon fight. Um, and, like, expressing the importance of the quest. At this point in the story, we have a time frame and a goal. It's ten days until the summer solstice to locate and then return Zeus's Master Bolt. The nature of um, this chapter that I really like is that it starts to set things up for the remainder of the book. It gives you, like, a timeline, but... Um, Once we meet the Oracle, we have a clearer picture of where things will be heading as well. Like we have, so we've got the time frame and a goal, but then there's also like a list of things that need to happen as well. Mm -hmm. The prophecy Um, does a really good job of setting us up for this adventure. Yeah. And that's what I really like about it is because it, it's not, it's not spoiling the story for you, but it's giving you really obvious, clear foreshadowing. So you almost have like a checklist of things that you need to go through as a reader before things will conclude. Yeah. And I don't know, I really like that because sometimes I get like anxiety about reading new things. No, <laughs> so when yeah. I'm given a list of like, even if it's a cryptic one, like the, like we find out the prophecy is, like mm-hmm. it's still something it gives you an idea of where things are heading and i just really love that and if you're anything like me with the first time i read this um prophecy i was sitting there like trying to dissect it and trying to solve it before i got to the end and i love doing that kind of stuff i was like well who is it where is it what is this like (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I did the same thing. I'm going to just like go through after this conversation with Chiron. Just one simple sentence. It started to rain. So, uh, you know, Percy's responsible for uh, bringing rain into the camp, which is going to only further distance him from everybody else. They're like, what? It's not supposed to be raining. Yeah. Yeah, and Percy feels absolutely horrible. And he specifically even says in the book, I did this. I brought the rain to camp. 
Yeah, but it's not even his fault. It's Zeus thinking it's his fault that exactly. brought the rain to camp. Percy's Zeus just needs existing. To get a hold of himself. He does. He needs to stop bullying children. Bully his brothers instead. <laughs> bullying children. Yeah. <laughs> That's the title. <laughs> Zeus bullies children. Chapter Zeus episode 10. <laughs> yep, there we go. We got it. I'm going to send that to you on Discord so we don't forget. There we go. Zeus go. bullies children. Mm-hmm. So... Percy's finally processing what's happening, and he asks one question. So where is the bolt? And Chiron is hesitant to say, because he has a feeling he knows where it is. And where he thinks it is, is the underworld. But I believe that he thinks, if he's correct, that Percy's not coming back. At least not in one piece. I mean, given the track record of heroes going into the underworld and coming out alive. Yeah. Pretty pretty, pretty short list there, buddy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that's a very good point though. When when Percy goes up to consult with the Oracle, because Chiron like lets him know like, okay, yeah, no, you got to go talk to the Oracle. Um, my favorite line is, <laughs> when you come back down, assuming you're still sane, we will talk more. Like, um, excuse me, what? <laughs> this kid has gone through so much already, and now you're like, oh yeah, if you uh, if you still have your mind intact after uh, speaking with the Oracle. I'll tell you some more things that you might need to know. Wait to wait instill some confidence in the guy. Yeah, seriously. Like, also- we know that the spirit of the Oracle has been known to drive people to madness, but Percy yeah. doesn't know that. Yeah. I really question Kyron's ability to keep 12-year-olds alive sometimes. <laughs> um, definitely meant to teach uh, heroes, but children? really questioning it and i understand that he said that his purpose is to work with the heroes but (laughs) yeah (laughs) yeah (sighs) all right that's it i just that i just needed to voice that because i was thinking about that i'm glad you did (laughs) now with um with percy heading up to the oracle there are a couple things i wanted to touch on that were pretty significant in terms of helping to set the scene um so First, we have the smell of mildew, rotten wood, and snakes. This is important because in history, the oracle was known as the spirit of Pythia, which means, like, to rot. That kind of mildew, rotting nature smell is very in line with the meaning of her name, I guess. And then um, the oracle in English was also known as the Pythoness, so that's where we get the snakes come in as well. Mm And once Percy's upstairs talking to the Oracle, that snake-like metaphor continues because you've got green mist tendrils like snakes, but also hissing like them and coiling in his mind. Just like the imagery in this scene with the Oracle, I just really loved it. Like the way that the Oracle is like talking to him and stuff. So I really hope, sorry to kind of go on a a sidetrack trail just for a couple of minutes. I really hope that with this new TV series that... Rick is able to work with the team to really help some of this imagery that he has built come to life because oh god I hope so this isn't the first time that we've been like wow the imagery the description it's all so tactile mm. that it's like we're yeah right like there. you can you can smell and feel the scene yeah it's so so descriptive and very well done I'm like man because mildew rotten wood that's a very specific smell like it reminds me of 
walking in an old forest and there's a dead tree that's like crumbling away that you can like see the bugs climbing in and out of Mm. yeah yeah and then like i don't know the way that like he described the words coiling around his brain it's almost like my brain started doing the same thing and it's like you can almost you you can feel it yeah yeah it's it's an odd sensation Mm. um so as percy's in the attic he's there's specific things that are mentioned that are up there including their shields covered in stickers one has an ithaca sticker one has a Circe's Isle sticker, and one has a Land of the Amazon sticker. And I find this really cool because in the next book, we end up at Circe's Isle. And then in the next series, we end up at the Land of Amazons. I think that's really cool, whether or not... I think that Circe's Isle was definitely a little bit of a foreshadowing moment. I'm not sure if the Land of Amazons was, because who knows? I makes you wonder if he even expected to write more than the one book in this series at the time mm. but it's just really cool reading back on it and be like oh my gosh like these are places that we eventually go to with these characters and then the other thing is there's a hydra head number one at woodstock so Minnie, do you know what woodstock is um i've heard of it but i don't really know a whole lot about it obviously i'm i'm a simple island woman that's okay <laughs> um well lucky for you i'm gonna talk about it So Woodstock was a music festival that took place August 15th to 18th in 1969. It was held at a dairy farm in Bethel, New York, and it's about 40 miles southwest of the town of Woodstock. So it was advertised as an Aquarian Exposition, Three Days of Peace and Music, and it was alternatively referred to as the Woodstock Rock Festival. This festival attracted more than 400,000 people, And across three days, 32 different musical acts were performed, even during the rainstorms that were going on. So one of the Hmm. things about Woodstock is that it was known that there were so many people that they were, like, knocking down the fences that were put up to get into this festival. And it just became chaos towards the end. So it just makes me wonder, what happened at Woodstock that involved a hydra? Mm. what happened at this music festival (laughs) Mm. because and if you're thinking well maybe there's another one because every few years there'll be like a woodstock festival but it's not the same thing but the dates in the actual book itself hang on i can pull it up hydra had number one woodstock new york 1969 i'm dead so yep it's the same year it's the same time frame so i would personally love some sort of like little story in the future of just a, what happened. I would love a collection of short stories about, like, from Rick about some of this stuff. Yeah. Also, hang on a second. So you remember how Annabeth was talking about different celebrities that we wouldn't believe who were half-bloods? What if that was from someone who played at Woodstock? Ooh. But, like, Janis Joplin performed there, Santana, Grateful Dead... Credence Clearwater Revival, The Who, like so many big names of that time. Jimi Hendrix. My money's personally on Jimi Hendrix being a demigod. (laughs) Um, Because this is where the controversial version of the Star Spangled Banner was played. And it's because it's considered that because he played it on electric guitar and distorted the entire thing. 
And if you are a music junkie, like classical music junkie like I am, there's so much controversy around it because there's so much saying that like, oh my gosh, this should only be done in this key, in this way. Like there's only one way to perform the Star Spangled Banner in the United States. And exactly, that's not what music is about. I'm so sorry I'm on a very different tangent. Let's talk about Percy Jackson. That's okay. But yes, one thing, I just oh, yeah, jumping back into how uh, <laughs> the Oracle speaks to him, Percy observes that it didn't feel evil. Like, remember earlier in the chapter, he specified the dream voice was evil. It's a deep evil. But this one is more ancient and powerful, kind of like the fates that he met on the side of the road. So more of like a magic to me. Yeah. As the oracle is telling this prophecy, because that's where we're going to next, the green smoke that comes out takes the shape of a poker game. But not just any poker game. It's Percy's apartment, and it's Gabe. And Minnie had noted in here, why was it Gabe? And as we were going through these notes, I think I have figured out maybe one possibility. Mm. Gabe has always targeted him his entire life. And I think that that's the biggest person who Percy has always felt like he was up against. And now he's realizing it's so much more. And the Oracle tapped into that. Hmm. So, okay, that's really good. Yeah, that's that's my uh, that's my theory for it. Yeah, I also think, like, the fact that he really dislikes Gabe. And yeah. would, like, if Gabe is the one who's giving in this challenge... I feel like Gabe wouldn't believe that he could do it and Percy would almost have that determination to prove him wrong. Yeah, I agree. Okay. So (laughs) the prophecy is as I say, you shall go west and face the God who turned. You shall find what was stolen and see it safely returned. You shall be betrayed by one who calls you a friend and you shall fail to save what matters most in the end. So breaking it down line by line, you shall go west is very forward and face the God who turned. So if you're a first time reader, I'm not going to say who it is because that's not very fair. What God did you initially think of without confirming, denying or anything like that? I know we kind of talked about this a little bit beforehand. If you want, I can give my reasoning first. No, I think we'll leave it. We'll we'll leave it no, open, just leave it open? Um, so okay. that we can come back to this. Then. Let us know what your thoughts are on this. Honestly, yeah. like we'll come. We will be coming back and addressing each line of the prophecy as we travel through the story. But yeah, I always thought it was super super interesting because I mean I always thought it was a, a particular god. <laughs> mm-hmm. I did too, yeah. for various reasons. Um, the second line: "You shall find what was stolen and see it safely returned." Lightning that's ball. a pretty straightforward one. Yeah, that's not really a spoilery. It's saying yeah. right here, the lightning bolt will be stolen and it will be safely returned by Percy. Um, you shall betray, be betrayed by one who calls you a friend. This one and the next line always made me really uneasy. Me too. <laughs> because there were several different outcomes that could have come out of it. And then the last line is, and you shall fail to save what matters most in the end. So I just wanted to break it down a little bit more by more, talking about what was straightforward. No, it's good because, like, Percy 
doesn't know what any of it means at this point. Like, he could probably figure out the second line, and that's about it. When he talks to Chiron about this, he leaves out the last two lines. Like, he doesn't he doesn't really tell him about it. And Chiron picks up on that, too. Um. <laughs> I'm not surprised that he does. I'm sure Chiron's yeah. seen his fair share of uh, prophecies and was like, Oh, only two lines? You're lying to me. <laughs> But yeah, I when Percy's done with this and he goes to talk to Chiron about it, I love Chiron's teaching style on this because he doesn't just give a direct answer. He asks Percy questions in a way that leads Percy to find the answer on his own. And that's kind of the best way you can like learn something, at least for me. Absolutely, um, yeah. When I was learning on training in my last job, I was actually <laughs> trained by my partner. Um <laughs> But he had a similar teaching style. He wouldn't give me the answer. He would show me how to find the answer for myself. Mm -hmm. And that was really helpful. And it led me to become like a lot more knowledgeable myself. So I really appreciate this teaching style. After speaking with Chiron, Percy does note that some of the fear that he's feeling lifts. And he starts to feel like that anticipation instead. Well, yeah, because now he's told that he can bring two people with him and percy immediately is like grover and then annabeth volunteers herself <laughs> yeah she, oh yeah i forgot to note about that she's like you she's think like, you're leaving without sitting me there invisible in the room listening to everything <laughs> just like takes off the hat and steps out from like behind chiron and it's like oh okay you've been here the whole time got it <laughs> the saddest part is, is percy's not even that surprised yeah he's just I like that's hilarious oh of course you again yeah. Finishing off the chapter, we have learned a few things. Uh, Zeus is mad. Zeus is always mad. Um, <laughs> Hades is after Percy. <laughs> We've got the Furies and the Hellhounds chasing after him, who are direct like monster correlations with Hades. Mm -hmm. uh, Grover is terrified of joining in on this quest. Um, Annabeth is a little bit too eager, and Percy is aware that the gods are using him. He has ten days to save the world. Good times. <laughs> very good times this is a very in my opinion possibly anticlimactic chapter but it gives us a lot of information mm, it sets up the rest of the novel yeah absolutely the rest of the novel and the rest of the series with that being said it is one of my favorite chapters oh um, so good <laughs> i very much enjoy just the imagery as we're in the attic the realization that percy i feel like Percy had accepted what his world was, but I don't think he realized how dangerous this world could be for him. And I feel like that was talked a little too lightly of to him, considering the fact that Grover went to Yancey's Academy because they sensed a strong half-blood. And even yeah. if he didn't end up being a child of the big three, it seems like the Athena children are pretty powerful too. So you'd think they'd want him to be prepared and be like, hey, you need to train because something about you is attracting these monsters. And I just wish that they had stressed that. And this is why I say, Chiron, how are you keeping 12-year-olds alive? How are you keeping 12-year-olds alive? <laughs> uh, I think the point is that he's kind of not. I, I think you're very much right. <laughs> I think it's Grover sometimes keeping them alive. I'm so sorry. That was horrible. <laughs> oh, goodness. Okay. For our Percy Jackson News Spotlight, 
Today is September 13th, and if you are not living under a rock, you are aware that we have a Percy Jackson TV show teaser trailer. Yes. And this is what I would like to say. I hope you guys enjoyed our breakdown episode of that trailer. Uh, honestly. I forgot like, this episode It's so funny. It. When it when it came out, literally everyone was uh, sending it to me either on Instagram, yep. <laughs> on Discord. Like, me too. <laughs> they all know I got Percy Jackson podcast. I need to know about it. I'm like, I saw this like 20 minutes after Disney tweeted it. Like, come on. <laughs> yep. I'm in the loop. Don't mind me. <laughs> <laughs> I thought it was great. So... Don't forget that you can find us at Cabin Eleven Podcast on Instagram and on Twitter at Cabin Percy. You can email us at Cabin Eleven Podcast at gmail.com to share your Percy Jackson story or just in general connect with us. And don't forget that we also have a Ko-Fi. It is ko-fi.com backslash Cabin Eleven Podcast. If you're willing to financially support us, that is wonderful. If not, following and subscribing is always free, and we're always appreciative of any support we get. And we hope that you enjoyed your night in Cabin 11, and look forward to having you visit us for the rest of this fall. See you next time. Woo-woo.